Hello there. Welcome to SITREP, the BFBS Radio Roundtable discussion on defence issues that matter to you now and in the future. I'm Christopher Lee. Now, this week we have a simple double question. Why does the United Kingdom need nuclear weapons anymore? And from that, should we scrap Trident, renewal, and spend the 20 or 30 million pounds on conventional, uh, billion pounds on conventional weapons and equipment? It's, it's a political, military, and it's also a moral debate, isn't it? So, with me at the SITREP Roundtable for the next 60 minutes, the Global Analyst at University College London, Dr Marty McCauley, the Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove, the Director of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark. Now, as everyone will, I think, know, all two nuclear, only two nuclear weapons have been used ever, both against the Japanese, both in August 1945. So let us spend time on the history of what happened then and how it was that nuclear weapons were on hand to end that war in the Far East. Who's going to start with this? I mean, J. Robert Oppenheimer directed Manhattan Project. I mean, anybody want to tell me what it was? Michael? Mm, Well, that was the the, the project to develop the nuclear bomb. The British and the Americans worked on it together. And the Um, Canadians. Canadians too. Mm. Uh, And they they had two bombs. They They had a uranium bomb and a plutonium bomb. They only had two. Uh, they wanted to imply to the Japanese that they had lots, but they only had two. And they weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, were, uh, I think it was Nagasaki, that was actually a secondary target because mm. the primary oh. target was obscured that day, so it was extremely unfortunate. But that was it. It, it had the right effect. The Japanese realised that this was a terrible new weapon. But if, they'd, if the Japanese had brasted out, as it were, the Americans couldn't have dropped a third one. But Not so would, quickly. But they would have had some more to support an invasion a bit later. There were plans for about six or eight nuclear strikes tell, in support of the invasion. OK. Now, but Martin, tell me... Um, what happened is there was the thing called the Potsdam Declaration, wasn't there, in July of 1945. And that was basically saying to the Japanese, give up. And the Japanese said no. Now, that's really the, the, the start of the whole thing. Yes, the Soviet Union had come into the war um, against Japan. And or threatened to. Was or, about to, was about to. Was about to, yes, they did intervene. Uh, but the Japanese said they would never surrender, and the only troops, the only Japanese troops who ever surrendered were mainly Koreans. But uh, Japan, uh, I think it was Roosevelt, uh, who, who uh, his chief of staff, told them that uh, they would need over a million casualties. It would cost a million casualties to actually occupy Japan. It would be ferocious, extremely difficult. And if, if the Japanese had held out, had they known there were only two bombs, they would have carried on fighting. But there were going to be more bombs... Available. Yes, in fact, one aircraft and one bomb. I mean, I think one, mm. you know, you can ask the question, why wasn't the aircraft intercepted? Because they thought it was a weather flight. A single B-29 could not inflict that well, damage yeah. in the eyes, in the eyes well, of the Japanese. But really no, but you needed a whole fleet of them yeah. to kill as many people, actually, with incendiaries who were killed by nuclear weapons. But one plane, one bomb one city. That makes a huge amount of difference. But what was really interesting about this in historical terms is that because faced with the, the, the war ongoing, the, the, the idea of losing a million more men to invade Japan, nobody gave a real... Uh, nobody thought that this was anything more than a really big new bomb. 
They didn't uh, know, the, did the they? idea that was at the beginning of a new era, the scientists had a sense of that. They certainly did. I mean, Robert Young, Brighton and a Thousand Suns, when they saw the test at Alamogordo in New Mexico, when they tested the first bomb in 1945, some of the scientists said, this is the beginning of a new era. But none of the politicians felt that, and that's understandable. They, you know, if this device could end the war, as opposed to a million more casualties, then they wouldn't have given it, they wouldn't have given it a second thought. And I have to say, I wouldn't have either and in the their position. And the casualties inflicted by these kiloton range bombs <laughs> were only the same as only, quote-unquote, the same as those inflicted by the very, very heavy incendiary raids. I mean, this which was... Which had been extraordinary, which had been Which had been very heavy and killed a large number of people. I mean, tens of thousands. Because there were wooden, more than tens of wooden thousands. Wooden houses. Uh, Tokyo and places like that were wooden houses. So therefore you've got the wind... I mean, well, this was, it was bigger than Dresden, yes, but yes, it was more vulnerable. Worse, far worse, perhaps, because of the, the nature of the housing. But the other thing is that Stalin, because of his spies, knew what was coming. Uh, and when Truman told him about him, uh, he was rather nonchalant, and the Americans were rather put off by this. Uh, what they didn't realise was Stalin knew already. Now, the key thing is the atomic bomb changed the strategic balance of power in the world. Because had there been no atomic bomb, the Red Army, the Russians, would have dominated Europe militarily. Right. But the atomic bomb changed all that. It, going back to this thing, you, you, you said um, Harry Truman, President Truman, was sort of pretty nonchalant about the whole thing. I mean, it was Truman eventually would have had to take in the decision. He this took, wasn't a straightforward military. Decision, Roosevelt died on the 12th of April, 1945, and, of course, the bombs had dropped in August. And um, Truman took the decision. He took, he took it bravely enough, but, I mean, Marshall, who was uh, George Marshall, who was uh, very close, and all of the, uh, the top brass in both the, in the State Department, in the White House and in the military, um, had no doubt that if once this weapon was ready, it should be used. It's interesting, the, the Los Alamos Target Committee, I mean, Los Alamos, because, I mean, that's where you, you do bombs, um, the Los Alamos Target Committee, they suggested that the main target should be Kyoto, the old imperial yes, yeah. capital. Yeah. With cultural impact. With mm. cultural impact, yeah. No, they wanted to keep the emperor because they had to think... The Americans uh, brilliantly organised their Was occupation. the emperor at Kyoto then? No. Yeah. No. But it would have cultural impact, but it wouldn't, mm. it wouldn't kill the emperor. The, the, Americans, the Americans... It's like doing Westminster Abbey or something like that. But, got you don't, sort of... but you don't kill Buckingham Palace or Downing Street or whatever. No, yeah. the Americans had trained a group of Japanese-speaking Americans who were there to take over, and during the American occupation of Japan, they didn't lose a single man. It was brilliantly organised, and in order to do that, they reckoned you had to keep the single uh, most important figure of authority in Japan, which was the emperor. the emperor. And if the emperor were then OK it, that was OK. But if you destroyed him, you'd have the whole of Japan against you. I thought it was fascinating that... Um, it was. Henry Stimson, he was the Secretary of State, wasn't he? Yes, the yeah. equivalent Foreign Secretary at the yeah. time. He vetoed the attack on Kyoto. Do you know why? He'd spent his honeymoon there. That's right. Well, it was, it he liked have, it the It would place. have seemed like a war crime, because Kyoto yes. is such a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah. he mm -hmm. liked Culture the impact. He said it was lovely. We can't go and do Didn't that. Didn't put the Brits off Dresden. Um, I think yeah, well, well, Dresden, was, was, Dresden was more of a military target than... Yeah, you tell me which, you tell me which foreign minister spent his honeymoon in Dresden. Yeah, exactly. But I think... But I think no, Dresden. No, but I think... No, 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 but I think it's an important point, actually, that this was an era in which destroying cities had become the normal conduct of war. Uh, and it took fleets of bombers to do it, to destroy Dresden. The RF did extremely efficiently. The US Army Air Forces destroyed Tokyo extremely efficiently, with very large numbers of casualties. This was, this was total war. So doing it with one aeroplane and one bomb, it was hoped, 
and they were right, it would have more shock effect. But actually killing very large numbers of people, I'm afraid, was what Allied air power was all about in 1945. Mm. And anybody who's seen the American film Tora, 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 which was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, 55 minutes before they declared war in America, would understand why the Americans would then drop an A-bomb on Japan. Uh, Germany, Berlin, you'd think twice. But Japan, they were paying them back for Pearl Harbor. And I still think if Germany was, had still been in the war, there would be one on Berlin and one on Berchtesgaden. So one on uh, Erith Kent, by the sound of it. I tell you what, I mean, why do these two targets... I mean, Hiroshima, can I, I can understand. I mean, it was the headquarters of two corps. And it was a city that hadn't been bombed very heavily, so it, would be, it was a very suitable target for the nuclear weapon. Nagasaki right. was the unlucky one. It was, rather. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Nagasaki... Uh, it was because of cloud, you say? You couldn't go to the primary target. Which so is they, Kokura. Yeah, and they diverted to Nagasaki. That was their secondary target. And no of course, they'd lost, their, they'd lost their spotter plane, hadn't they? The That's, right. That's right. But it was still a major harbour. I mean, it was at least as much of a target as any other city in Japan, yeah. actually. Mm. And I mean, it's also remember, Mitsubishi. Remember, with conventional oh. weapons, the Americans were destroying something like 90% of certain Japanese industrial cities. They were, they were burning Japan down. It just made it easier to do it with one bomb rather than with a whole fleet but of bombs. Somebody, somebody who was a prisoner of war in... Singapore, I remember him saying that the bomb had such an impact on the Japanese that they decided more or less to give up. Because had there not been that bomb, the Japanese would have continued fighting. And who knows how long that would have lasted. I said another side, when um, Hirohito, the emperor, I mean, he really believed that the Soviet Union might invade as well. Invade, invade, invade the island. Well, they invaded Manchuria, Manchuria yeah, yes. through the Japanese out of Manchuria. Yeah. And when, I mean, he actually thought it quite possible that they would do this. And in fact, in his surrender speech to begin with, it was all because the Russians were coming or the Soviet Union was yes. coming. Yes. It wasn't, I mean, he didn't want to talk about this bomb, did he? No, in, in a sense, the decision then was, we've lost the war, we'd, we'd rather lose it to the Americans than lose it to the Russians because of the post-war settlement. That's I the whole point. I love yes. that wonderful bit of Japanese understatement. The war has not gone quite as successfully as we hoped. Yes, but in fact, which is wonderful, isn't it? And, and of course, if you, if you think <laughs> it, it's an ahistorical thought, but I mean, Japan did extraordinarily well out of American occupation. You can imagine what it would have done out of Russian occupation if it, if it had gone the other way yeah. and the Russians had occupied Japan. Would Japan's economic growth have ever taken place in the 50s? Yes. Japan, Japan was as lucky as West Germany, uh, and both were developed by the Americans, and the, the, the markets, the American markets, were opened up and technology transferred okay, because let's, let's of come the back communist to, threat. Let's come, back to our nuclear, wait, let's come back to our nuclear yes, weapons. But he did because, talk about the nuclear weapons. Yes, he actually I mean, said I've got that in the fact thing the danger, here. Yes. Do you want to read it? You've got it. I okay, gave fine. it to you. The you enemy it. now possesses a new and terrible weapon with the power to destroy many innocent lives and do incalculable damage. Should we continue to fight, not only would it result in an ultimate collapse and obliteration of the Japanese nation, but it would also lead to the total extinction of human civilization. I mean, there we have don't we? The whole argument ever since that spawned CND, yes, everything, yes. it's the total extinction of human civilization. The, the point is, once the weapon is used, you see, when it's under development as a new technology, it's just a new technology. And as Eric said, it, it's, it's one bomb to do the work of several raids. But when you're on the ground, when you see the actual effect, the fact is that nuclear weapons are a red line in human terms because one bomb, one device could kill 60,000 people in an instant and irradiate them and make the territory unoccupiable for potentially thousands of you, years. You could argue it's, a, it's greatest, a red line. It was the greatest ever weapon for peace. It mm. kept uh, world peace for 
since 1945. But that's the point. Once one is used, you can't pretend that it's it's just another weapon. The genie. Yeah, the genie's out of the bottle yeah, that, once one is used. True. But when yeah. we come later to the, the Soviet uh, um, high command in the 1970s were keen to use atomic weapons because they believed they had superiority. So mm. therefore the whole concept of the bomb mm. being a red line has to be considered because uh, they... Uh, thought, and as did Mao Zedong, he argued the same thing. Uh, let's have a nuclear war because there are more Chinese uh, alive at the end more of it left, yeah. uh, than anyone else. So uh, the thin red line is for, really, if you like, Western world. We see that as a terrible loss of life. Oh, I suspect other... the others see it as a terrible loss yeah. of life as well, actually. That's one of the great things about nuclear weapons. It makes even as ruthless politicians as the Russians or the Chinese. Yeah, I twice. mean, Truman was saying that. I've got something else he said. He said they don't accept our terms, i.e. they being the, um, the mm-hmm. Japanese after Hiroshima, he says they may expect a rain of ruin from the air the likes of which has never been seen on this earth. I mean, it's almost an understatement. There were 140,000 people killed with, by one bomb at Hiroshima. There were 80,000 killed at Nagasaki with one bomb. That is quite a hit rate, isn't it, in the crudest sense? Just think what would have happened had the bomb been dropped on Tokyo. There wasn't much left of Tokyo, actually, to bomb by that time. Okay, and but that's why the phrase, say Robert Young called it, you know, brighter than a thousand yeah. suns. There was something primeval, there was something elemental about this technology. Yeah, a former, I think, a former director of your place, right, Clark, uh, Paddy Manor. Yes, yeah, Paddy Manor, yeah. Wasn't he on one of those flights? He was, was an, an observer. Ob- uh, he was an observer flight, on, the, on the second, yeah, the Nagasaki, Nagasaki flight. flight. Yes. Yeah. And I never met Paddy, actually. <coughs> he died, sadly, yeah. not so long ago. And he, I remember him, say, him, him saying to me that um, it, it, it gave him a huge, huge uh, sense of wonderment mm. at what he'd seen, the enormous destruction. Well, it had a big effect on Leonard Cheshire, who was also an yes. observer on the Hiroshima flight, and it, it had a, a huge effect on him. Yes, yes. And he became a passive. Uh, tell, can I tell you just, just one thing, which I suppose this is not really fair, but the bizarreness of the whole thing... And that the two aeroplanes, or, or the two weapons, for example, little boy mm-hmm. and fat man. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is bizarre that you sort of give these these sort of names. Well, it did, it did look, I mean, the, the second bomb particularly looked like a fat man. It was an implosion device, so it was quite round, and it had, a, it had, a, had fins on it. It had to be short and fat, like me, because it had to fit into the very short bomb bay of the B-29. In fact, the B-29 design very much constrained the bomb design of the United States until they got bombers with larger bomb bays. Did you know that, that well, you do, that the, the, the Hiroshima B-29 was called Enola Gay. Enola Gay, that's right. Because it was after the pilot's mum. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. I mean, it's somehow... It, but again, you know, that, that emphasises how this was, this was what they did. I mean, they called their bombers what they wanted to and they chalked little messages on their bombs. Exactly. They treated these bombs and these aircraft just like anything else until the bombs were dropped. And They then, chalked messages on these bombs too, actually. That's right, that's yeah. right. These were, it was just another bomb... <coughs> But once they were dropped, the world was different. I mean, we're still doing it in the sort of way, you know, the shark's teeth on the... On the on yes, the, yeah. On, 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 on the Thunderbolts and the Typhoons. Yes, yeah. 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 All right, let's go... Um, so we've had the bombs dropped um, in August um, uh, 1945. And they're rapidly trying to make another one. And they'll say, if necessary, we'll drop that, but it'll take a week or so to do it. I mean, this shows the... I don't know... It, it, 
it wasn't, there was a calculation of what they were doing, but they weren't actually ready to do it. That's right. There's an urgency to end the war. And they didn't know if either bomb would work, as, as <clears> I, we said. I mean, they one was, one was uranium. What, yeah, one was a uranium bomb, one was a plutonium bomb. They, they didn't know if they would Little work. Little Boy was a tremendous gamble. I mean, the, mm. the, the uh, Fat Man was a plutonium bomb like they tested, but they never tested, an impl- they never tested a gun-type yeah. device P- People don't realise this about nuclear weapons. They, they, they think that nuclear weapons are like some giant egg that if you hold it, if you drop it, if you slip, it will go off. It's, it's far more difficult to make a nuclear device work. Than, and they're much more likely not to work than yeah. to work. And indeed, I mean, if you look at the accidents that have been over the last 40, 50 years, I mean, these things have been blown up, they've been, they've been thrown into the air, they've been fired. There's lots of things that can go wrong with a nuclear device, but getting one to go, go off, off mm-hmm. is extremely mm-hmm. difficult, actually. Thank goodness. Do you know that since 1945, there's 128,211 nuclear warheads have been made. Gosh, that's a very impressive figure. You, you didn't look at your notes when you said that. That's very good. <laughs> it's on one a of them, but I can't number. find a it. But it's number. true. Very good. 128,211. That, that well. means that you know how many uh, nuclear warheads the Chinese have. Tell me. Uh, nobody knows except the Chinese. Mm, right. guess, Tell me who. I mean, guess. So we start off. Let's hang on. We start off with the Americans having the them in, in 1945. Yes. Then who gets them? Soviet Union. Soviet Union. Yeah. 1952. No, before that. 49. 1949. 49. 1949. 52 is the plut. What is it? The plutonium. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Professor the, Grove. Yes, the Soviet Union gets ex- explodes its first device, a direct clone of the American one, because Beria was scared that the Russian Beria design. Being the... Beria being the head of the Soviet secret secret police, but also the pe- person by put put in charge of the program by Stalin. Right. And he knew the American device worked. They had a, they had the plans of the American device, so they made it explode. Even though the Soviet designers themselves correctly thought they might have a better device. And then here we come to Britain. Now Britain had been the first country to decide to build a nuclear weapon. It even predated the United States. But sensibly, they'd combined their program with the Manhattan Project in the United States. We expo- well, hang on, you say they sensibly combined it. Were they because, forced to or what? Because the British hadn't really got the resources to do it on their own. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, the Americans completely cut off cooperation after the war, much to the shock and, and against agreements, actually, uh, uh, taken out during the war. But despite that, given the knowledge that we had being part of the Manhattan Project, we exploded our first nuclear bomb in 1952. Where did we do it? Australia? Uh, off the coast of Australia. Uh, and uh, the bomb was inside of a frigate. It was actually exploded inside a small warship. And I, I said vaporised, but one of my friends at Aldermaston said, you mustn't say that, a bit of it was left. A little lump of the ship was left after the which, bomb had gone which, off. Which HMS Plym. P-L-Y-M. P-L-Y-M, a river-class frigate, HMS Plym, yes. Cool. I mean, did and, everybody and that watch decision it? to go nuclear on the British, Britain's part was never subject to anything, not even a cabinet discussion. That was what was interesting about it. Attlee, the British Prime Minister, yes. and three others decided that if the, the Ameri- committee exactly, now, if the Americans were, had withdrawn cooperation, we had to go it alone, and that was never put to the cabinet. Certainly, so never put to presumably Parliament. Ernest Bevan. Ernest Bevan. Yeah, yeah. Ernest Bevan. And who yes. else was the other one then? Uh, in a previous, well, actually, it was a committee. Like it was Morrison, a, Morrison, no, it was no, a committee. It was a committee called Gen One Six Three. Yeah, but like was, governing through so we got, committees. Hang on, we got Attlee doing it. Ernest Bevan, who was foreign secretary at the but time, but not yeah. the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But not That's the right. Chancellor. No, very interesting, isn't yes. it? Finance had not got to come That's into right. this. So who well, was, I think I think Morrison. So and, who what was Morrison? And, the, uh, and he was um, uh, Duchy of Lancaster. That was right because he was close to Attlee. I think I was. The key. I think the key. Wait a minute. Just just anybody who doesn't remember, he was the grandfather of 
Peter Mandelson. Mandelson. There'd been a previous cabinet discussion, though, and this is very interesting, uh, about whether we should start producing the infrastructure for a nuclear weapon. And famously, according to reports, Ernest Bevin, the Foreign Secretary, came into the, after rather a good lunch, apparently, but but also after having met uh, Mr Burns, the American Secretary of State, and said, we've got to have it, and there's got to be a B Union Jack on top of it. No British foreign minister is going to be spoken to like I've just been spoken to by Mr Burns, which demonstrates that actually, in part at least, the target of Britain's nuclear weapon was not so much the Soviet Union, it was the United States. Yeah, but the other thing is that Bevan was very, very anti-communist and anti-Soviet, and he saw them as a great threat. Well, he was one of the architects of NATO, wasn't he? Yes. But he also saw our nuclear weapon as a way of giving us a certain status vis-a-vis mm. our major ally as well. OK, let's get back to this thing. We've got the United States, we've got um, USSR in 1949, we've got the United Kingdom in 1952. Yeah. Then France when? 64. 60, it was quite late, was, wasn't it? Yeah, 64 before they uh, exploded the weapon. We then got, China? China is quite yes. late. China's quite late. Yes. France, it's France, it's France and China. Then India, Israel, Israel, India. India, well, India in 1974, they yes. produced Their this nuclear device. device, which they say is for peaceful purposes, doesn't convince anybody, yes. based on Canadian uh, designs. And then the Indians, the Pakistanis, both produced weapons-type explosions in 1998, within months of each other. And Israel is that wonderful nuclear power which doesn't admit to being nuclear. Never tested. Never tested. There were, there were some, there were... They tested the trigger. Well, there were, there were, there were some... Oh, they tested all the components. There were some reports, there were some reports of cooperation with South Africa. Of course, we must remember South Africa that got nuclear weapons and then got rid of them. Or had capability, didn't they? No, they had them. They had several warheads and they got rid of them. They didn't test, didn't they? Because the... Was it the Vela satellite that picked it up? Yeah, there was an Anonymous test, which everyone was left, as far as the newspapers were concerned, as a mystery, and some said, oh, it was an earth tremor and so on, but the intelligence services always knew it was a a South African Okay, listen, um, so we've got, can I just run through this? We've got the United States, uh, USSR, United Kingdom, uh, France probably next. uh, France next. uh, China. China, India, Pakistan and Israel, we're not quite sure when they came in. Now, we then get into the the definitions of what you do with these things. <laughs> no, North Korea. No, North, North no that's, that's modern stuff. No, oh, you want modern... Yeah, mm. that's modern stuff. We can come to, you know, do we have North Korea in, do we have Pakistan mm. in, not yet, etc. Oh, Pakistan's in, but North Korea... Yeah, uh, sorry, I meant Iran. So you could have North Korea because everybody believes that they're now in the club. Mm. OK, um, explain the difference, uh, Mike, between a strategic nuclear weapon and a non-strategic nuclear weapon, because this is the, the definitions that are always, or yeah. uh, <laughs> phrases well, that are always used. W- when people say strategic, what they normally mean is that this is designed like uh, Hiroshima, to, to bombard the homeland of your enemy. It doesn't and have to be a missile, that's the point. No, it? no, yeah. uh, the, the idea of visiting unacceptable destruction on the population of your enemy. Now, um, that's uh, mutual assured destruction, the idea of you attack us, we will attack you and we'll destroy each other potentially, or we'll certainly destroy you. Uh, Below that, you've got the possibility of tactical use, which is to say, well, we'll use them as a battlefield weapon. And, of course, there were were thousands of tactical nuclear weapons. Some of them were quite absurd. My favourite tactical weapon was was the Davy Crockett. Oh, the Davy Crockett. Which was a missile, yeah. And its blast radius was greater than its range. 
So it there was were a lot recoilless, of... It was a recoilless mortar yeah. with a yield of 0.1 of a kiloton, sort of 100 tonnes of TNT. They tried to persuade the crews, and it was basically a radiation killer, actually. They tried to persuade the crews that the radiation kill was actually just within the sort of yeah. the range of the weapon. But they didn't believe it, and so they usually had the jeep revved up alongside... Beside a, lot, it. A, lot it was a, lot, a lot of posthumous uh, awards so were they likely put, to be made. So, they put, used, so yeah. they put the Mark II on the jeep and slightly extended the range. Tell, you can tell this guy guy is a bus anorak, can't you? <laughs> I mean, he has got these figures, and you can imagine the guy revving the Jeep yeah, up yeah. to get the hell out of it. It's about 2,000 metres. <laughs> but the, the, the essence of the, of the issue was that people understood that strategic nuclear weapons were a, a new characterization of, of warfare, but that the militaries and the scientists just kept on developing new things, and they yeah. were finding tactical uses for these things. So we Sorry. ended up in the 60s with a strategic balance but this sort of mess of tactical nuclear weapons, some of which were completely useless, were, some of which were, right. were, could have been useful but were dangerous, which would have to be used very early, if at all, etc., etc. And one of the things that made NATO and the Warsaw Pact competition so perilous in the 50s and 60s was this ac accumulation of tactical weapons. And it was always said that, that it, would, it would have been impossible to have some sort of limited war. If you'd used any of these weapons, Germany was destroyed, whatever happened. Mm. Yeah, atomic demolition munitions, in other words, atomic mines. Madam, the medium atomic demolition munition. Mm. Saddam, the small atomic demolition backpack. munition. Were, some of these were backpack they nuclear were, weapons. That's right, mm. absolutely. Could be three-man team, one of them carrying it on his back. Well, nuclear I'm depth nice. charges, nuclear torpedoes, mm. the whole gamut. It was quite amazing. You can see where I get my 128,211 <laughs> from, can't you? <laughs> yes, you well, can. I'm right in thinking that no nuclear non-strategic weapon was ever used either uh, deliberately or that's inadvertently. Correct. Absolutely. That's correct. That's mm. true. Which that's shows quite, the extent of the, the extent of the control over them, actually, yeah. and the effectiveness of the control. Well, they were all in the hands of powers that, that technically knew what they were doing. Yeah. They, 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 I mean, the Russians had a few sort of frayed edges. They couldn't account for all of their weapons when they withdrew them, for instance. There were lots of accounting errors. But in general, yeah. these things were not... You know, nobody had authority to use them unless the authority was genuine and that technically their controls were pretty, pretty good. Yeah. OK, listen, if you're wondering... <laughs> Wondering if you just sort of start eavesdropping on a bunch of strange loves. Um, <laughs> in fact, you're listening to a special edition of the Sit Rip Round Table on BFBS Radio. Today we're talking about, as you see, nuclear weapons. And in fact, we'll get round to, does the United Kingdom need nuclear weapons anymore? Still with me in the studio, um, Dr. Martin McCauley, Professor Eric Grove and Professor Michael Clark. Uh, incidentally, if you've missed any of the programme, you can podcast SITREP or listen again. Simply visit bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Now, the efforts to control who has nuclear weapons and how many they have has largely been a bilateral or bilateral arrangement between the United States and the then USSR. I wonder if it's worked. On the line from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Um, Paul, when did we start trying to control um, how nuclear weapons, how many people sh should have them and who should have them uh, and how they might be used? I suppose seriously it will be about 1963-64, in many ways after the shock of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was a period from about 63 through to 67 when a lot of progress was made. You had the limited test ban treaty which banned testing in the atmosphere and did, limited the size of nuclear tests. You had a number of nuclear-free zone treaties. The Treaty of Tlatelolco, the Latin American one, came in in the late 60s. And perhaps most importantly, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, again 1967-68. So that was when it really started. Um, those were broadly multilateral treaties, uh, and, but the key thing, as you mentioned, is the relationship between the then Soviet Union and the United States. And essentially it was at the end of the 1960s that you had the 
first of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty negotiations, start one and then in the 1970s start two. Those were fairly slow processes, and Start 2 in particular was... Uh, sorry, SALT 2, not Start 2, my apologies. SALT 2 was actually trying to limit the number of delivery vehicles, and at the same time, each side was putting lots of warheads on the individual delivery systems. So there was a real problem with that, but broadly, in 1960s, it really got going, and then came and went for the next 20, 30 years. And did that sort of get going of, of, of these treaties, largely because the technology got going, the delivery systems got going, um, the fact that I mean, certainly the Americans were wondering about the ability of the, the Russians to deploy nuclear weapons in outer space. That was partly it. There was the Outer Space Treaty. There, there are a number of others. There was a seabed treaty which prevented the weapons being deployed permanently on the seabed and one or two oddities as well. To some extent, I think there were, there were two motivations on the American side. One was that a, a rather dangerous balance of terror was developing. The Soviets had been behind the Americans, but were building up very quickly at that time. And the other was, I, I think we now know that uh, both sides, particularly the Americans, really were pretty shocked by how close they got in uh, the autumn of 1962 over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was not long after that, a few months after that, that Kennedy made his this famous speech at Notre Dame University, which actually said the United States would stop atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. It invited the Soviets to reply. They didn't reply directly, but in the space of four or five months, there were quite good moves on both sides, and we got the, the test ban treaty by the autumn, although it, was, it wasn't a complete treaty. That's something that Obama now wants. But the, it, it's interesting. We go, we're going back, what, 40 years, yeah, 45 years, yes, really, certainly. and we still, uh, it, it sounded a good idea, stop testing. Yeah. It, it, and in a sense, I think this is one thing among the many steps that Barack Obama wants to move on, uh, fissile material cut-off treaty. Uh, the most important, I think, from his perspective is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. That has not been ratified by the U.S. Congress, and he wants that done. Uh, it quite largely symbolic, uh, but it's also very important. If you get that going, if that was to be ratified in the next few months in the run-up to the 2010 review of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, then that will possibly set the scene for, for further developments on a fairly wide range of fronts, not least between the Americans and the Russians. But you, you, we've got examples, for example, India, um, Korea, North Korea, don't have to sign up to any of these treaties. No, they don't. They never sign The North Koreans withdrew from the Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Indians, the Pakistanis, and the Israelis never signed up to it. Uh, and essentially, the Indians have always taken the view that it was a treaty which allowed the people with nuclear weapons to keep them and try to stop other people getting them. And they've regarded it as a little bit hip, hip, uh, hypocritical in a sense. And I think from the American perspective, now that you do have these background but very real fears of a slowly but surely proliferating world there is this idea that we've really got to revisit control of nuclear proliferation much more seriously and if you're going to do that then you do have to take some degree of lead as one of the two main powers. And it's also I mean, President Obama has said it wouldn't be you know, it'd be great not to have nuclear weapons when well, we know that uh, but no American president would unilaterally give up and certainly no Congress would okay it. 
No, they wouldn't. And in fact, when Obama made his, gave his vision for a, a nuclear-free world back, I think it was a speech in Prague, wasn't it, in April, mm. he basically said he, he did not think it would necessarily be done in his lifetime. But he could certainly live another 40 years, so it's that sort of time scale. But at the same time, I, I think the idea is now abroad from a wide range of political circles that there had to be very serious reductions. And in due course, maybe in a generation or so, the possibility of limiting it to a relatively handful of weapons, possibly finally under some sort of international control. That would be the kind of aim, but in the short term, there are all kinds of problems, not least, of course, um, the Israelis, the Iranians, South Asia and, and East Asia. Uh, but there is this change that there's a mood which wants to make progress, which, frankly, there wasn't there three or four years ago. Do you remember, I mean, it was October 1986, the uh, Reykjavik uh, summit mm. with uh, Presidents Reagan and um, uh, Mr. Gorbachev. And I remember them saying, well, zero, zero option, and the only thing that stopped it was that the Americans wouldn't give up on the Strategic Defence Initiative. And I remember Number 10 briefing like fury and saying that um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was going to Washington, and she was going to give him a handbagging. Yes, uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, Reagan, at, at that time, at the Reykjavik summit, did personally seem to believe that one should make really major moves, and he found that Gorbachev was willing. And an awful lot of people got very worried that this president was perhaps, you know, getting a little bit past it and actually talking about getting rid of nuclear weapons. And at the time, that was just not acceptable um, to Mrs. Thatcher, to many people across the United States. Uh, and for a brief moment, there seemed to be a chance that very big progress could be made. It didn't last very long, and that was one of the opportunities we lost both then and in the early 90s, uh, at the end of the Cold War. But I got the impression at the time that the then Defence Undersecretary, I think that's what he was, Assistant Secretary, Richard Pearl, had the whole thing under control. Well, he hoped he had it under control, and this is where the, what Reagan was saying when he was meeting Gorbachev, and I think some of the meetings were with virtually no officials present, just interpreters. I think that was at a point when things really rather got out of control, and we got fairly close to rapid progress towards nuclear disarmament. didn't last long. Do you think, I mean, this has been almost a life's work for you. Hmm, I mean, yes. do you think, I mean, it's, 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 it's dreamland, the idea of global nuclear weapon disarmament? No, it's not. I think if you view it in a very wide perspective, nuclear weapons from 1945 onwards have given the, the world human community the capacity to almost destroy itself. We came very close in Cuba. We came very close at the Abel Archer uh, crisis in 1983, but we got out of it. Uh, and as a species, if you like, we haven't yet learned to live with our own destructive capability. Things are much better than they were 30 or 40 years ago. I'd characterise it this way. During the height of the Cold War, there was a very small risk of everything going over the abyss and a worldwide nuclear conflagration. That would have been so serious that even the very small risk was very dangerous. We're now on... Uh, we're not in that position. We're now on more of a slippery slope. The risk that we slowly get to a proliferating world. Some ways that's more difficult to tackle, but I think one of the positive things about Obama coming in is that we may have um, a, a world leader who actually is prepared to take some steps uh, to move away from what could be a very dangerous world. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Martin? Uh, to go back to October 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis and the shock waves that went through uh, the Soviet Union, the Americans and the world and so on, Khrushchev, despite his bellicosity, actually wanted disarmament. 
for various reasons. One was a, a shortage of labour in the United States. Disarmament uh, or reductions? Reductions okay. of nuclear weapons. Mm. Uh, because he realised that the, uh, it was a terrible waste of resources. Uh, the Soviet Union had uh, a labour shortage and all this money going into defence could have been used elsewhere. And it was a tragedy for the world that he was removed in October 1964 from this point of view, but also the assassination of Kennedy, because he believed that some type of deal could have been done with the Americans, and it took another 20 years until Gorbachev that you reverted to uh, that type of mentality. I wonder, there's something struck me at the time, and I suppose everybody remembers or heard talk about Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl, for the people who don't remember, is when um, a, a Russian... Uh, power station, mm. fundamentally. April 1986. April 1986. Very badly designed power station. Yeah, well, well, in, the well, 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 in the Ukraine, basically, uh, it, it blew it caught up. Caught fire. Caught fire, and out came radiation. And you don't buy, still today, you don't eat chump chops in Wales or something like that. It struck me at the time that this proved that, um, that uh, nuclear weapons... Uh, don't, for example, observe neutrality. No, that, and that d did have a, quite a big effect on people's thinking that suddenly farmers in North Wales, not South Wales, but North Wales, were underneath the, uh, sort of the, a ribbon of the plume of radioactivity that went through and it affected their sheep. And, the, and this idea that, that one relatively, no, it wasn't a minor accident, but one entirely predictable accident in a reactor over a thousand miles away mm. could actually make your land unusable. Yeah, Wales was very unfortunate because it rained. Mm -hmm. Washouts, had, it, had it been a beautiful, a beautiful <laughs> clear sky. But the country that really f uh, suffered is the present-day Belarus. Because a third of its land is still unusable. And eastern Poland was also affected and so on. Uh, and it should be remembered that was civil nuclear power. Mm. No. Was, and that, you know, that all would have been worse apart from the heroism of a lot of the, the Ukrainian workers, the construction workers, because they, they poured concrete into that reactor core and they knew that well, they were committing suicide when they did it. And they did it. Yes, they did it. They went there and I mean, these weren't military, they, they didn't have uniforms on, and they committed suicide. To, to literally pour concrete into this damn reactor. So it, a lot of people owe their, owe their lives and their land and their existence to those 20 but this, But this is what makes nuclear weapons, quote, different, unquote. And I think that's what really worries people. It's not so much, actually, the huge blast and heat effects, which with very large H-bombs can be very great indeed. It's the fact that you get these, these radiation effects, which are sort of, you know, mysterious, and then you get all this, rip, if the bomb is exploded close to the Earth and gets fallout, etc., mm. you get fallout out downrange and this creates a radioactive hazard and I think it's that that really worries people about nuclear weapons even more than the initial effect although the initial effects are quite big as well. The, the, Soviets, the Soviets also suffered a military uh, nuclear accidents in the, say in the Urals and this in fact turned academician Andrei Sakharov who was one of the, the, the uh, begetters of the Soviet atomic bomb uh, against nuclear weapons and he wanted disarmament. Okay listen we, we, we can now get to the bit about uh, the United Kingdom's uh, uh, nuclear capability. And it's the whole question on the renewal of Trident. Now, Michael, Trident needs to be replaced by... 2024? Well, 2024, the, the, the presence boats go out of the service. The vanguards. The vanguards. So if we are to maintain 
continuous at-sea deterrence, as they call it, so there's always a boat available on station somewhere in the Atlantic, uh, then there has to be a renewal by 2024, which means that the latest time you can really start building these things is about 2015, 2014. So, so it really we're talking about the debate about the boats rather than the yeah. nuclear the, capability. The, the missiles are not the main issue. Yeah, I mean, we get, the missiles, we get the missiles from the United States, we build the warheads ourselves. The issue is, uh, when do you renew the submarines? Because they have a finite life, and ours don't last as long as the Americans. We don't Apparently actually build them quite so. as well. I, I got the House of Commons Defence Committee, or tried in my evidence, to try to get them to ask these questions. And the questions were answered, to my mind, pretty well, actually. I now believe that the, the Trident submarines have been built for a shorter life than the Americans. American ones. I know there are American analysts like Garwin who say they haven't been, but I think they probably have been built for a certain lifetime and therefore they have to be replaced on, on a certain schedule. When have we got to decide? Uh, well, the, the MOD said in uh, 2006, of course, when Tony Blair took the decision, we have to decide now. But I think most independent analysts say that actually we've got to decide by 2012, 2013. So two or three years yet before got, it becomes really critical. You've got to keep the design teams together. Yeah, in fact, there, are, Garwin, there are certain things you have to do that's now, right. but they're not terribly expensive. Right. I mean, Garwin's right in a sense, although he puts it in a rather provocative way, saying it's about these, the shipbuilders who want the contracts. And, mm. But that, that's a rather crude way of putting it. I mean, basically, mm. if we want to continue building nuclear-powered submarines, we need to take decisions you see, pretty early. This is the interesting bit, that we're talking shipbuilding. We are. But yes. really, um, if, you don't, if you don't build the boats then you don't carry the missiles. Yeah, when, and this is the big, the big the debate, isn't it? As to when we, whether we should stay nuclear or not, yeah. as a matter of morality, as a matter of defence. The argument always comes down to uh, technology, the, 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 <laughs> the industry, uh, the, the design. And it's, it, we, never get, we never really discuss first principles in this country, even though we have had those debates over the years. But when we make these decisions, we always make them on very second and third order questions. That's right. Not on first order questions, which is, is it right that we should have nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future? Well, partly that. That is because the the partly because the the debate on whether we should have them has really been left to CND. Yes, it's, like it's become polarised. And those of us who've been interested in this debate for the last twenty years, we also it's it's like telling jokes by numbers. We all know the argument. So I say <laughs> yes. I give you argument six and fifteen. Oh well, I count it with argument twenty three and thirty four. A lot of truth in that. And we all know exactly <laughs> what the arguments are. It all comes down to belief. There's no rational way of, of arriving at this. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about gut reaction and instinct. It basically comes down to the idea that we don't know how we may or may not use nuclear weapons in the next fifty years. But if the world is going to have nuclear weapons, we'd rather have them as well. Exactly. It's as yes. simple as. It all comes down to threat perception. Uh, do you believe there's somebody out there who, in fact, would do you down? Why is it, though, that the public... Um, I mean, considering everything we've talked about, from uh, Hiroshima to Nagasaki to mm. Chernobyl, why is it that public seems to be less than interested? Anybody? I, I, th I think it's a sort of lack of interest. It's a certain lack of imagination as to what these things really do. do you, you will remember a film called The War Game by Peter Watkins, yeah, I think excellent it was, film. who made it, which was not released. It was made in 1964. It was not released because it was said, the BBC said it would create too much alarm. And we all saw it in various you know, underground cinemas and so on. It was released eventually. And it was pretty shocking. <laughs> Um, and, and the public don't really want to know this. It's a bit like environmental degradation. They, they understand it at a, at, a, at, a, at a general level. They don't really want to know when what the wind happen. blows. I suppose, exactly. I suppose there's a broad feeling that that all finished with the Cold War. That in fact now the Cold War has ended. We aren't facing the same danger of the same kind of danger of nuclear attack. But which up to a point is true, but not completely true. Yes, but, but if you were a, a feature writer, for example, and you went to your editor and said, "Listen, I want to write something 
putting pros and cons of not Trident, not necessarily Vanguard, but pros and cons of having nuclear weapons and what it, the effects of nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, There's no readership for it. There's no uh, readership. Apart from amongst the, the interested cognoscenti <coughs> who've been talking about it endlessly for 20 but odd it, years. It's, it's linked to the rejection of civil nuclear power in this country, uh, which has been going on for perhaps 20 years, 30 years. Uh, and along with civil nuclear power, of course, there's military nuclear power. And the average person sees it as um, uh, a hydra. Yes. Okay, let's go back to this because um, I'm going to say I, I was talking about CND earlier, and I'm saying outside the CND, there doesn't appear to be a, a moral debate on nuclear weaponry, whether it should, sort of thing you should have. And the one place you might expect that debate with any cogency and even vigor would be in the church, wouldn't you? Well, surprisingly, the church does not always grab a moral nettle. One who has is the Roman Catholic Archbishop of St Andrews in Edinburgh, Cardinal Keith O'Brien. He's on the line now. Cardinal, is the potential mass destruction is, even in the 21st century, a moral issue, is it? Yes, I would certainly say it is a moral issue. If killing one-to-one is a moral issue, I would say potential mass killing is certainly a moral issue and should be discussed at every level. In fact, how do you get people, though, to listen? Because you have the authority yes. of, of, of being the Cardinal Archbishop. Yes, well, I think I do manage to get people to listen. Um, I've, I've managed to get them to listen on a variety of issues and, and also with regard to Trident, quite simply by speaking out and handing on something of the very clear teaching of my own church, the Roman Catholic Church. Do you say to your priests in the parishes, you really ought to be um, saying this in your homilies? What I normally do when I issue a statement, as not so very long ago I did, and I also did last year, is I circulate my priests with my statements that are on my website, and I leave it to my priests then where and when to hand on my teaching on these issues. And I have very active uh, justice and peace groups not only at diocesan level, at archdiocesan level here in, in, in our country, but at parish level as well, where these issues are indeed discussed and debated upon. I was reading one of the things you'd said, and you said that since, I think I'm right, since to use these weapons would be immoral, to, to threaten their use is immoral, and to hold them with a view to threatening their use is also immoral. Now, that's a pretty straightforward statement. Why... Isn't there a big public debate then? Well, I find it difficult to understand myself. The Scottish bishops issued that or a similarly worded statement as long ago as 1982, before three years before I was a bishop myself. So um, I'm not taking all the, the responsibility or, on the other hand, the praise for the, the clear teaching of our church through the Scottish bishops. And that statement is based on Vatican Council documents. Uh, in, in some 20 years before that, even in the mid-1960s, the, the world bishops 
acting in collaboration with the Pope, said every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. Now that was in the 1960s from our church at its highest level. The Scottish bishops came out with that statement in 1982. And I personally have tried to engage in debate at every level since then. And I'm very grateful to acknowledge that the Scottish Parliament uh, has come out with a similar statement in in recent months. Uh, We're certainly agreed on this politically here in our country with regard to the possible renewal of the uh, Trident nuclear system. But when you say, why why do more not engage in public debate? I, I, I would think Perhaps there's a certain fear. Um, we're worried, <clears throat> or many people are worried, what would happen if we abandoned nuclear defence? Would that not leave ourselves completely open to other countries to um, just bomb us indiscriminately? Uh, I say there's fear, there's perhaps a lack of knowledge about this whole wide field as as to what's going on. And perhaps there's a certain hope too that this question will somehow or another go away. But I think there must be more and more urgent debate about this. The morality first of all, and then all these other issues would come afterwards. Clear clear up the morality, then think about the financial problems, diplomatic problems, military, political problems, and all these sorts of other arguments would follow on but I think the morality is something that we really must be considering more and more in our countries at this present time. Father, there's a, an interesting point here, I suppose, and that is when you say we've got to get the discuss the morality of it all. We live now in a society which looks at the institutions and questions the morality of those institutions, the way they behave. Does that make it far more difficult to actually... Uh, stake out the moral issues in something like a nuclear debate? Um, It certainly could make it more difficult, but I think that whatever about the morality of institutions, we have got to stand on a moral high ground on every issue which is of concern to our people. That's part of our responsibility, as uh, I said in, in, in Scripture by the great St. Paul himself, we've got to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in season and out of season, welcome or unwelcome, and uh, whether or not it's accepted by those who are listening. If we think we're teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have this moral authority as a church, we've got to do it. Whatever about people say about our own institutions, our own churches, our own religious bodies or whatever else. Cardinal Keith O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us. There, gentlemen, is one of the problems, though, isn't it? There are two problems in that, if I may say so. The first is the Scottish debate, and that is very important. The Scottish question? The Cardinal cardinal is is representative of a minority Scottish church, but still one of significance. And it is all part... It's also representative of a church which has one-sixth of the world's population. Yes, and many of them accept nuclear weapons, particularly in America, I would have thought, and actually quite a large number in Britain. The, I think the... Uh, um, you know, I mean, there are plenty of Christians who have found nuclear deterrence perfectly acceptable as because nuclear deterrence helps avoid mm-hmm. war. 
And I would argue very strongly that nuclear, that nuclear deterrence does help, help avoid war. You get many fewer people killed in a nuclear world than you do in a purely conventional world. And I do not want to see Britain in the future, even after I'm dead in a few decades' time, open to possible nuclear attack from other countries. And it's all very well being all moral and, 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 and goody-goody about this. One has to face realities. But the Scottish question is important. There is no doubt, because I've, I've disagreed with, with some of my Scottish friends about this, there is no doubt there is growing in Scotland a very important movement against Britain's nuclear force being based in Scotland. It is, and it's something that we're going to have to think about very carefully. Mike, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that I mean, talking, having the Cardinal on the programme, talking about the morality, it sort of... Suddenly there's a silence in the debate. No, isn't there, there isn't. I think he's wrong. Well, he's I think he's, he's completely 180 degrees he's wrong. He's obviously done something right. Yes. No, the, the point about <laughs> morality is... But I, be, I go to church. I mean, of course, I belong to, to sort of the genuine English church and not this Roman recusant rubbish. I mean, you know, there is... There is... There mm-hmm. is you know, honestly, I mean, there is another Christian view about this. Yes, right. it's, based on the wait, 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 wait. it's based on the concept of the, of the dilemma. Um, Ma- Michael Quinlan, sadly, died yes. very recently. He was, great, he was a great guru of, of And he was a Roman Catholic, too. He was a great Roman Catholic, and, and it was based... Uh, his view is based on the sense that there is a dilemma here. It would be nice if these things didn't exist, but they do. Now, as it happens, I'm on the side of the cardinal on this one. But I understand, absolutely, Michael Quinlan's point. He, said, he says you can't disinvent these things. I'm, I also think President Obama may be right, that a denuclearized world is still a possibility. I don't actually think it will happen, but it could. It's still, it's still feasible, in my view. And if it's feasible, then it's worth pursuing on a moral basis. I think, That's I right think that is a very, very Western, uh, American uh, and Europocentric view of the world. Mm. What you have to take into consideration now is that, if you like, influence and power of the world is switching to Asia. And you look at the Chinese and Indian concept of these matters, morality doesn't come into it. And to defend the Cardinal Archbishop, he doesn't have power. He's not responsible for the defence and uh, the security of of anyone. He can speak from the high ground, the moral high ground and so on, and he's absolutely entitled to do so. Uh, But then you go back to uh, St. Augustus who said you can use force to defend the weak and so on. And if you're going to use force and you have nuclear weapons... Everybody blames everything on St. Augustine, don't they? (laughs) No, no, don't blame him. He he was absolutely right. You defend the weak. And if the other side is nuclear weapons, you have nuclear weapons and you can defend the weak. So therefore, I would have put this point to the uh, Cardinal Archbishop, what about St. Augustine? But if you look at the Chinese argument, they would see the rest of the world ganging up against them. They say, ah, you want to uh, have no nuclear weapons because that will make you stronger. But, but Marty, we're, we're talking about the, the, the moral argument here or moral principles. The idea that the, the rest of the world doesn't share your principles is not an argument for resiling from your principles. If, no, if, if, if you it, say this is a moral argument, the fact that you may be in a minority doesn't affect the morality of it. It may affect the, the way you politically think it's, you could pursue it. But then you're going to have difficulty in convincing people to take you seriously agree, or, agree. or, or but, to take the argument seriously because it, it, it is uh, a side issue. But isn't there a higher principle here, which is, in my judgment, and I could be wrong, in my judgment, I think that nuclear weapons have helped prevent major war for many decades. Yes, they have. I think that if we are, at, that we are going into a world where there are going to be more rather than fewer nuclear powers, sadly, although I think the Non-Proliferation Treaty has limited that problem, but nonetheless there is still yeah, a problem. It's not as bad as it could have been. <laughs> and and it, at a time when we are facing a Russia that sees nuclear weapons as its first line of defence rather than its second, I would be very worried about doing away with the British nuclear capability. Okay. I really would be. Listen, about that nuclear capability, because we've only got five minutes left, chaps. Um, I wonder if there's another way of doing this. 
uh, deterrence thing without Trident stroke Vanguard. Eric? Well, perhaps, and I have in the past written in favour of other, other, other nuclear systems, air-delivered ones, which made, a, I, I thought, a certain amount of sense in the 1980s. But I'm a bit of a born-again Trident man, I'm afraid. It seems to me that the Trident system, the way it's developed, with a relatively small number of warheads with a high chance of delivery, with a few low-yield warheads to give us a number of flexible options, it does give us probably the most cost-effective okay. capability Anybody we else? could have. Oh, tri Trident's mm. the Rolls-Royce of nuclear deterrence, so if you want the best... In a strategic sense, you want a strategic deterrence to last you for 50-odd years, then Trident is probably the most cost-effective way of doing it. But, but you can only use it for nuclear deterrence. The thing about other systems, more, I wouldn't say cheap and cheerful, but, but less good systems, which may be a bit cheaper, um, do give you flexibility to do other things with them, and maybe they might make it easier to enter into arms control. The thing about Trident, you either have it or you don't, I, I as this, a nuclear system. I fought this battle back in the 80s. And I was convinced in the end by the counter-argument, which was that you need a nuclear deterrent which is specialist. OK, Martin. Yes, in the end, all you need is one nuclear deterrent, uh, one or two, and it doesn't have to be trident. And you have to convince the other side that you will use it. So therefore... Uh, it, and it can get through. And it can get through. So therefore, it doesn't have to be trident. It doesn't have to be submarine launched. OK. Now, tell me, we've got two questions, really. Under what circumstances do we imagine we may use our nuclear weapons, Michael? I cannot imagine what they would be. That's why it comes back to what we said before. In an uncertain future, do you feel better with them or without them? Um, but you take an, an, an analogy of uh, firearms in the United States. The fact is, people carry firearms in the US, and if you carry a firearm, you're about five times more likely to get shot than if you don't. <laughs> in a, in a nuclear world, in a nuclear world, it may be that you might be safer without them than with them. And I'm interested in those arguments. Mm. No, I think the, the, the key factor is, if you believe you're facing annihilation, if you believe... Your perception is... You is that the Masada complex, though? Yeah, uh, nuclear annihilation. And remember, the Soviet Union did this in the 1970s, in the beginning of the 1980s. Then you will use it, because it, it's the only it's last line of defence. And you will warn the other side that if they launch a nuclear weapon, uh, you will do the same thing. Even though you're going to be obliterated, you're going to also obliterate them. OK, um... I can imagine Eric. circumstances in which possibly British forces deployed overseas might face a threat of the use of weapons of mass destruction against them, which might warrant the use of one of the smaller warheads in a limited quantity. I can imagine circumstances where if we were defending NATO partners against Russia, we might be threatened with, with Russian nuclear weapons. We would want some way of retaliating so we could maintain a certain amount of freedom of action to protect our allies to whom we are committed. I can imagine a whole set of circumstances where Britain is much more secure having submarines out there in the Atlantic with Trident missiles aboard. It's fascinating, isn't it, that, I mean, after the Cold War, I mean, if we talk sort of 89 war comes down, 91 sort of the things all over, um, people turn around and say, well, what do we use them for then? Who are we going to point them at? Because there's this feeling that you've always got to be pointing it at someone. And for once you... I agree with Tony Blair. It's very surprising. I usually don't. When he says the possibility of some terrorist and some state sponsor having possibly a nuclear weapon, he probably had Iran in mind. Now, it is a possibility that that could happen. And I think it is necessary in these circumstances to say to any state that might be tempted to launch a nuclear weapon against Britain or Western Europe... Watch out, you might get something coming back the opposite way. Yes, what happens if Al-Qaeda uh, acquires a nuclear weapon, perhaps? Oh, they'd love us to use that's the whole point. If you play deterrence with terrorists, they would like you to initiate a nuclear exchange. These no, people are calibrated. Or even respond. No, 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 but no, no, but they, they, would love to, they would love to provoke a nuclear exchange. 
Yeah. They'd think all their hedges had come at once. Yes, that's yeah. a, I mean, that's the whole principle of being a suicide bomber, isn't it? Precisely. Playing nuclear politics with terrorists is a fundamentally foolish thing to do. It's but what are you going to do if Al-Qaeda threatens to drop the bomb on you? The nuclear bomb on well, you, you, you. You can't deter it by your use of nuclear weapons because they would love you to use it. Only in mm. certain circumstances and in certain Can I contexts. Just, I just think, thinking back uh, recently, what Dennis Healy said. Dennis Healy, when he was Defence Secretary, said that if there had been a nuclear launch from uh, Russia, Soviet Union, he could not say, OK, press mm. the button, because the deterrence thing would have finished and. Well, that, that's the big issue. That's we don't, we don't know. It's never, mm. Thankfully, it's never it's been tested. Point, but the argument is there is such a human red line against pressing the button. You know, are you really going to incinerate 50 million people in retaliation for, for because of a mathematical but calculation? Best, but, the best, not. but the best red line is the knowledge that if you do use a nuclear weapon, you'll get one back. Cool, you not sound like strange love, I tell you. Listen, I, I think enjoy this, that film, actually. Yes, but the whole point is what we've been discussing is, I think, very, very scary. Yes. Yes, it is. No, I'm, it I'm is. not scared. No, no, I believe that nuclear deterrence works. Yes, like Dr. Strangelove, we've learned to love the bomb, and if we have it, we're safe. Yeah, but the other part of this, though, or the conclusion is, that if we uh, learn to love the bomb and we're safe, um, we've really got to renew Trident, haven't we? We've got, if we believe that, then we have to have some system. Whether we have to renew it in 2024 is a different issue. Tell me something. Yes, yes. Do you think that there is anything in that you've known about in the, in, the, in the present government or in the future, a future Conservative government, will stop the renewal of Trident? Like I think there's quite a lot of evidence that both Labour and Conservatives will rethink Trident on grounds of cost and to fit in with an American arms control agenda. But neither of them, I think, are yet officially rethinking the concept of deterrence. And that's still, you know, I don't like it, but it still remains popular in British political debate and amongst the British public. And finally, Martin, you think this is a very Western view and... China and India uh, will look at it and say uh, it's a conspiracy against them. Okay. Conspiracy of time has caught up. That's it for this week. My thanks to Eric Grove, Martin McCauley, and to Michael Clark. If you want to listen again or podcast this program, visit bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. I'm Christopher Lee, Mary in the hut. <laughs>